You're listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast, featuring conversations inspired by a new era of sustainable and inclusive growth. Welcome to the fifth episode of McKinsey's Future of America podcast, where we'll explore how we can build a future that drives sustainable and inclusive growth. I'm your host for today, Quaylen Ellengrude. I'm a McKinsey Global Institute director and a senior partner based in Minneapolis. I lead insights on the future of work, gender equality, racial equity, and productivity. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined both by Kunal Modi and Reshma Sojani. Kunal is the partner in McKinsey's Bay Area office, and he leads in our public sector practice and customer experience practice and helps lead insights on gender equality. Reshma is the founder of leading nonprofit Girls Who Code and the founder and CEO of Marshall Plan for Moms, a national movement to center mothers in our economic recovery. Marshall Plan for Moms also focuses on valuing the labor of mothers by advocating for public and private sector policies to support mothers in the workplace. Reshma is the author of three books and recently in mid-March published Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work. Kunal and Reshma, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Can you both tell our listeners a little bit about your backgrounds? Reshma, let's start with you. I'm the daughter of refugees. I'm the mother of two and a geriatric dog. I can't forget Stanley. I was the first South Asian woman to run for United States Congress. I lost spectacularly. I lost again when I ran for public advocate, which led me to building my nonprofit, uh, Girls Who Code, which is one of the largest women and girls organizations in the world. We've taught over half a million girls to code and reached another half a billion you know, through our work of really building uh, the pipeline of talent to close the gender gap in technology. And now I'm launching and building my next movement, which is to center mothers with both public and private strategies after the economic recovery to make sure that we finally get to equality in the workplace. I clearly like to write books. <laughs> my, my latest book is out, uh, Pay Up, uh, which is about the future of women and work and why it's different than you think. Kunal, tell us a bit more about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Quaylen. So I'm a partner with McKinsey, as you mentioned. I'm a leader in our public and social sector practice. And my mission is really uh, on how do we help governments, nonprofits, philanthropies, and mission-driven companies better serve uh, the public and the customers that they serve. I'm also a leader in our customer experience practice. So I'm really interested in how organizations design solutions in a more human-centered way. I've also had the privilege of being a contributing author to Lean In for Graduates, where I talked a little bit about the role that men play in advancing gender equality in the workplace. I'm also the dad of uh, two young daughters. So I think about these challenges that we're going to talk through today every single day, and I'm excited. I have lots to share. Rashma, let's start with you. What does sustainable and inclusive growth mean to you? I mean, I think really briefly, it means that everybody can participate, you know, and it means innovation. You know, for Girls Who Code, I built it because I saw lines and lines of boys learning how to be Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs. And I was like, where are the girls? Like, if we're going to find a solution to COVID, cancer, and climate, we need to have girls coding. And with this new movement that I'm building, it's just, it's all about, you know, inclusive growth and sustainable inclusive growth, which is that we do not solve tough problems. We do not innovate or create unless we have, you know, half of our population being able to, you know, not just survive at work, but thrive at work. Kunal, what about you? What does sustainable and inclusive growth mean? Yeah, I think it's great that Rashma started with uh, sustainable, inclusive growth as being, uh, you know, a world in which everyone can contribute. It's also a world in which everyone benefits, right? So it's 
How do we take advantage of the different perspectives, lived experiences, ideas that different folks bring to the table? And I think we too often underestimate the, the value of just different life experiences and what that brings in a, in a business context, in an economic context. And we've got so many challenges to tackle as a society from climate change to gender equity to economic inclusion that I think we're, we're shifting the paradigm away from just focused on growth and actually growth that works for everyone in which everyone benefits. So this is really an exciting time and, and an important responsibility for all of us. Rashma, you just published your new book a few weeks ago called Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, which calls for innovative corporate leadership, government intervention, and a sweeping culture shift to improve outcomes for women at work and more deeply value mothers. What motivated you to write the book and what are some of the insights that we should remember? I think what motivated me to write the book is that, you know, Women are in crisis. I found myself at the beginning of the pandemic with Girls of Code having a Super Bowl ad. I was about to have my second child and I was so looking forward to taking my maternity leave. And then three weeks later, the pandemic hit and I found myself having to care for my newborn, homeschool my five-year-old and save my nonprofit from being shut down because when pandemics hit, the first resources to go are to women and girls. My entire E-team were working women. And what we were saying to each other on the Zoom chat was just, hold on a minute. Just hold on a minute. When September comes and the schools open, we'll be fine. We can do that KPI, launch that program, you know, raise that $100,000. And then when the schools didn't open, I remember naively thinking, are they going to ask me? Because as you know, Quaylen, like America does time and use surveys. And so we knew that two-thirds of the caretaking work and the schooling was being done by women. And we knew that school closures would force working moms to have to supplement you know, their paid labor, unpaid labor. And so the idea that a policy decision could be made like that without our permission terrified me. And then the second piece is you started to see millions and millions and millions of women exit the workforce. And so, you know, seeing that and experiencing that is what really led me to start the Marshall Plan for Moms and write my book, Pay Up, because it realized that, you know, I realized that I had been focused on the wrong thing. You know, for the past decade, I had been telling girls to barnstorm the corner office and, you know, lean in really hard and girl boss their way to the top, you know, and I learned the hard way that having it all is just a euphemism for doing it all. We can't just color code our calendar to, to equality, that we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the structure. And that if we don't fix the structure, i.e. paid leave, affordable childcare, flexibility, you know, all the things that make it possible for women to both be moms and to work, we're never going to get to equality. And that's why I wrote this book um, to really figure out how, you know, we've, we've dissected the problem. Now, now, how do we do it? And what are some of those solutions that you think would be most effective? Well, one of the things I'm obsessed about, which is what I think brings Kanal and I together, you know, in this conversation together is, you know, what can the private sector do about childcare? You know, we know that childcare is pretty much one of the largest cost centers for families. And in many ways is the reason why women either exit the workforce or downshift their careers. And that if we can make childcare affordable, like other industrialized nations, you could really get not just full participation, but healthy participation, you know, of women. The second thing, you know, I, one of the other things we're talking about nine things, but the second thing is really about mental health. You know, for the first time, the CDC reported that the subgroup, the second subgroup that is facing the largest amount of anxiety and depression post pandemic are moms. Moms don't break, but you're seeing high rates of alcohol addiction, you know, pill addiction, suicide rates. And it's because we have experienced trauma over the past years, not just for ourselves, but for our children. And so 
it's an opportunity, I think, for employers to say, I care more than just about you than more than just your, your output, but I care about your wellness. Should we be doing not just performance reviews, but wellness reviews and checking in, especially with our working moms on how are you doing? What do you need? And so I think that, again, we have an opportunity in this great resignation to redesign workplaces. I mean, simple things like why are workdays nine to five and school days eight to three, right? Even changing the hours of which we are working or working in the office could be game changing, you know, for so many families. Why is childcare so important for sustainable and inclusive growth? Kunal, can you help us connect the dots on why this matters and why we should all care about childcare? Yeah, absolutely. And we've been partnering with Reshma and her team at the Marshall Plan for Moms to conduct research on what are the experiences of working families. And so we ran a survey of nearly 2,000 working parents across the United States. And what we found was that childcare, or actually the lack thereof, is sort of a central challenge that people experience at every part of their labor market experience. So first, just in exiting the workforce, Rashma referred to this, but the data really bears it out. 45% of mothers with kids under the age of five who left the workforce during the pandemic cited childcare as one of the reasons they left. And that's compared to only 14% of men who said the same thing. Rashma also alluded to you know, the ability to be fully present and engaged in the workforce. 57% of women with children under the ages of five felt like they're held back from taking on more responsibility or taking that step-up role or taking that late meeting because of their childcare responsibilities. Compared to only 38% of men, so you see a 20 percentage point gap between working moms and working dads. And lastly, on returning to the workforce, you know, 54% of women who left the workforce to handle childcare during the pandemic said they would actually take advantage of a paid childcare option if it were available to them. 88% of women further said that some version of childcare supports, whether it's a subsidy, flexible uh, hours, or a number of other solutions that we'll dig into, would make them more likely to choose an employer uh, because that allows them to be fully engaged in the workforce. Um, so I know we're going to get into the data through this conversation, but the kind of overarching headline is that childcare is central to the experience of most working parents on participating fully in the workforce. And we really can't, you know, think about designing the workplace of the future without considering childcare as a central design feature. Rashma, you talk to mothers every day across the country. What are some of the themes that you're hearing about their concerns and what would make a difference? Yeah, I mean, Canal's right. I heard childcare, 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 childcare. You know, I just got a message from a midwife and she works at a hospital in a state where if there is an incidence of COVID in a daycare, the entire daycare shuts down. Uh, her son is three years old and this is now her fifth daycare closure and her fifth absence at work. And so she got a note from her employer saying, one more absence and we're going to have to let you go. And she says, well, I don't know what to do, right? Like, how am I having to pick between my child and my job? Because I don't have affordable, reliable, open daycare. And so this is the number one thing that I'm hearing from parents, because we have to remember we're still in the pandemic. Yes, we are moving our way out of it, but there are still very much policies, very much fears, very, a lot of things still kind of put into place that creates this amount of instability in terms of childcare, the expense of childcare. The amount of women were saying to me, gosh, you know, my, the cost of my childcare in my city has gone up by 30, 40%, but I'm still making the same paycheck. How do I reconcile this? I need to work and I can work in a job that can pay me a livable wage, 
but I'm being forced to have to downshift. You know what I mean? So I can take on some of that caretaking responsibility. So this is a really big theme, which is why childcare is a precursor to being able to work. And we have to see it as an economic issue and not your personal choice or your personal problem that you have to go then solve. Reshma, I want to explore intersectionality. There are some barriers that mothers of color on average face more than others. How do we improve outcomes for all moms? I mean, 70% of black women are not only their sole breadwinner, but their sole care provider. So, you know, they're facing this you know, at both ends. This is why you're seeing in the latest job report that the unemployment rates of of black women are still kind of at a 50-year low, right? They have not recovered even as much as white and Asian women have. And so again, that is because they are still being greatly affected by these childcare constraints. And so not being able, again, because of COVID to bring in family members who may contract the virus and get sick in to do some of that caretaking, not having open, you know I mean, daycare centers, again, being in jobs that don't offer flexibility. I mean, you have to remember, if you have a shift, if you work in retail and you have a 7 p.m. shift and you have a child and now you've paid for you know a daycare or a babysitter to take care of your child and you show up for your shift and your shift is canceled, you're out money. And so that scenario happens far more to women of color who find themselves in these kind of hourly wage jobs in retail, healthcare, education, you know, where they don't have predictability. And they are also more likely to find themselves women of color in childcare deserts, you know, where they don't have access to childcare. So this issue is a huge, huge, huge concern, you know, for women of color and their labor market participation. We're releasing this podcast near Mom's Equal Pay Day, which is early May. It's striking that mothers must work, on average, about four additional months to earn what a man did in the previous year. And we've studied this gender pay gap globally and across the United States, but it's even wider for working mothers. What are the barriers and other things that drive this gap in wages for mothers? This is what I find the most fascinating. We've been talking for so long about the pay gap. And, you know, as I was writing pay up, you know, what I really learned is the pay gap is not about gender and it's not even about care work, but it's about mothers and it's about the motherhood penalty. And you look at it, what's happening right now in 22 states, childless women are actually making more than men. But what happens is when you become a mom, you know, because oftentimes you may take a gap because, again, the vast majority of women don't have paid leave. So they have to take time off after they have a child. You know, if you have a gap of almost even a year, you can lose almost 40 percent of your income, which you then never recover back. Even when it comes to how we evaluate mothers versus fathers, when you become a mother, we think, oh, you're distracted. You're not going to be as committed to your job. So we're going to pay you less. When you become a dad, we think, oh, he's a caretaker now. We have to give him more money. And so if we eliminated the motherhood penalty, we actually would eliminate the pay gap. But the problem is, again, we've been chasing the pay gap as if it's a gendered gap. And so we've been focused on the wrong thing. And, you know, for us to really focus on removing the bias that mothers face, you know, in terms of both opportunity and pay will will basically allow us then to close the pay gap that we see in the workforce. I'll just add that the survey data that when we asked working parents reinforced many of the points that Rashma made. We heard for a loud and clear, there's a set of challenges and barriers that working parents face in accessing childcare. It's affordability, options that fit within a family's budget. The Department of Health and Human Services recommends that childcare not be more than 7% of a family's income, but for most families, that's not attainable currently when you look at the cost of center-based care or other options. 
It's how accessible are those childcare locations. Rashma alluded to the number of folks who live in childcare deserts. 59% of folks who live in rural communities actually live in a childcare desert by common definitions. It's how convenient those childcare options are. Do they align with your work schedule, with your, uh, you know, your other kid's school day? Um, can you get to it easily? Is it reliable? Is it going to be open every day that you need it? Will you get sufficient notice if for some reason it has to close? And if that happens, is there a reliable backup option available to you? And most importantly, is it high quality? Is it educating the future of our country, our children, in all the ways that we would hope for and that our kids deserve while their parents are doing their part to contribute to our economy? So those are a range of barriers that parents told us they're facing, and there's no silver bullet solution, but there's certainly many things that can make a difference across them. We're going to take a quick break before diving into our next segment. We're back from our break. Reshma and Kunal, we dove into some of the data on the unique barriers that mothers in particular face in the workforce. Now I'd like to shift to solutions. Reshma, let's start with you. What can we do right now to promote genuine inclusion and full participation of mothers in the workplace? Yeah, I think the first thing is we got to support women with childcare. You know, we are in a childcare crisis. And in the pandemic, it's gone from bad to worse. And for most families, childcare is the largest cost center. Most you know families spend more for their childcare than they pay for their mortgage. And the industry is broken. And we don't have affordable, reliable, quality childcare. And if without that, we just simply can't work. And so... I think while we're waiting for Congress to grow a heart, I think the private sector can really play a massive leadership role in this. And given the great resignation, and this is what our survey shows, this is what people want, right? People are quitting because they don't want to work for you, but they want to work for companies that care about them and care about their families. And so in many ways, providing childcare is cheaper than probably the attrition rate that many of these companies are facing. And so companies can do basic things like provide backup care, you know, offer subsidies to support things like Vivi or care.com. You know, if you have, you know, extra space, build a daycare center, right? This is the moment for you to think creatively and don't just offer it for your salaried work employees, offer it for your hourly employees as well. But this is a real opportunity in a real moment for employers, for us to really change the conversation when it comes to childcare and make it an economic issue and not a personal problem that you have to solve. I think the second thing that I would encourage companies to do is think about how they can incentivize men to take paid leave. I think about my own marriage. I married the guy that did the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry. And then when we had my first son, Sean, I took my leave and he didn't. And my to-do list went like this and his shrunk because I knew where all the stuff was. And so the ability you know, for corporations and company policies in many ways to really shift the gender ratio of the work that is being, do- being done at home is enormous. And thinking about how you implement policies like paid leave, how you incentivize men to take it, how you, in fact, tie it to performance reviews or, you know, salaries, et cetera, really say, we want you to spend time taking care of your children. We want you to spend time at home is critical. And I think on the back end, that means that we're going to get to equality faster. Kunal, why is now the time for companies and leaders to act on these solutions like childcare? Yeah, absolutely. Well, As you know, we're in this moment that is become known as the great attrition, right? Many employees are 
uh, voting with their feet and oftentimes not by choice, unfortunately. As I noted before, nearly half of women um, who left the workforce during the pandemic cited childcare as one of the main reasons that they, they were had to make that choice. Uh, this is really a competitiveness issue for companies. Let's remember who these working parents are. They're oftentimes those rising star mid-tenure employees in these critical managerial roles or those critical individual contributor roles. And when they leave the workforce, you know, organizations suffer from a loss of the institutional knowledge they had, the managerial capabilities that they brought to the table, uh, the mentorship that they provided, uh, to young people entering the workforce. So this is really central to how companies are going to continue to sustain the performance that they all aspire to do. You know, from our survey, a majority of women, as I mentioned, said childcare, better childcare supports would make them more likely to choose an employer. So as employees, employers are thinking about winning that war for talent that we talked about at the top of the session, childcare can really be one of those critical differentiators. And, you know, parents offered a range of solutions uh, for companies to consider uh, to support them with their child care needs. As I mentioned, affordability always helps, but also making child care more accessible, convenient, reliable, high quality. Beyond simply subsidies, which are important, parents also said that they value the convenience of on-site care. They value flexible stipends for last-minute backup care in that moment of truth at 6.45 a.m. when you know your child care solution falls through, or more flexible hours um, for your scheduling to, to meet the needs of, of your work and your family. If there's anything the pandemic taught us, it's that you know, work isn't really working for working families right now. And so this is a moment where companies really need to think about this as more than just tweaking around the edges of your employee value proposition. This is about kind of fundamentally rewriting the relationship with employees in a way that works better for them. And then honestly, it's going to work better for companies in terms of their own economic competitiveness. Let's talk specifically about some of the solutions that you've proposed in the Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma, can you tell us a bit more about what the plan is and what it suggests? Yeah, I mean, I founded the Marshall Plan for Moms because I saw that women are were in crisis. And it kind of felt like World War II bombed out cities where you had the opportunity both for the government and the private sector to step up and make real change. And so the Marshall Plan for Moms in many ways started as a conversation with my PTA moms. Like, what do you need to go back to work? And we heard the same things. I need affordable childcare. I need paid leave. You know, I need schools to open up safely. I need cash payments, you know, to, to value my unpaid labor. And so it began as really a push to the administration to say, as you think about what you should do for your first hundred days, remember that moms cannot be America's social safety net and that they need bailing out. And if we're going to bail out airplane, airlines, we need to bail out moms. And here are the things that we need to do to really fix again the structure of care that has been very broken uh, in our country. And, you know, we've kept our, 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 you know, our feet to that fire and really pushing Congress and pushing Washington and pushing states to kind of, you know, again, do right on paid leave and affordable child care and the child tax credit. Again, I'm not, I'm not very hopeful that change is going to be made in government this year, but moms can't wait. And so I think that the opportunity, we feel like the opportunity for the Marshall Plan for Moms really exists in the private sector to start really building private sector strategies, you know, that can fix the workplace, you know, that to make it finally tenable so you don't have to choose between having a job and being a mom. And so this book has really outlined some of those strategies so that if you were to re you know, when we talk about the future of work, it's not all about robots. You know what I mean? And technology. It's really about what would the future of work look like so that it works for everyone? And what would the workplace look like to make it work for moms? You know, when I built Rose Code, 
I started by going to refugee camps in the poorest communities. And I said, if I can actually build a program that teaches a girl who doesn't have Wi-Fi, that doesn't have a device, I can teach anybody. Same thing for workplaces. Unfortunately, we built the workplace for a guy who had a stay-at-home partner at home, whereas we should have built the workplace for a single mom, a woman of color that doesn't have adequate support. The pandemic has given us a redo and we should take it. And so, you know, part of that, again, is really pushing to say, why is the school day, you know what I mean? Eight to three in the workday, nine to five. Why do we pay for freezing of eggs, but we don't pay for childcare? Why are we so against flexibility or predictability when we think in many ways that will help support families when they're juggling their parenting and caretaking roles with their job. We've already seen that supporting mental health means that workers will be more productive, more committed. You know, let's invest in that. So, so again, I think really pushing the private sector to reimagine workplaces and also pushing moms to say, you don't have to breastfeed in closets. You don't have to apologize when you have to take your kid to a doctor's appointment. You actually can ask for the things that you need because right now you have power and you have leverage because companies are desperate for talent. And that means they're desperate for you too. Kunal, you've led McKinsey's support of the Marshall Plan for Moms now uh, for a while. Why are you passionate about this? Well, first, it's just the right thing to do. And second, I've experienced it in my everyday life. As I mentioned, uh, my wife and I are the parents of two young daughters, a four-year-old and two-year-old. And we recognize even with all the many privileges we have that we struggle to go through this. We can, you know, you only imagine the challenges that working families go through day to day and many of whom, whose stories we've come to learn through the course of this work. I'm really passionate about us creating a workplace that works better for all of us, for our experiences both as employees and to contribute to things that we're passionate about from a professional standpoint, but also as parents so that we can show up as parents in the way that I think we all aspire to for our kids and most of all for them and their future, right? For, you know, design, designing the workplaces that they deserve so they can pursue their passions uh, both in and out of work. Um, th this is really uh, personal and it's uh, really critical to the future of our country. So I'm just so proud that we've been able to do this work at the Marshall Plan for Moms. Help me paint a picture of what this looks like when we're successful, right? How can improving outcomes for moms through childcare drive more sustainable and inclusive growth for everyone? I think in many ways, it allows us to finish the fight once and for all. And, you know, the silver lining of COVID with so much unimaginable loss is that it allowed us to see that in many ways, from, from a feminist perspective, from a gender equality perspective, we were focused on the wrong things that women have always been prepared. They've always been qualified. They've always been 72% of all valedictorians and 57% of college degrees and the majority of PhDs and master's degrees, but that we're losing them in the middle and that the pipeline is leaking. The pipeline is leaky when we become mothers, not because we're choosing to stay at home, because it becomes untenable to be a mother and have a job. And if we can fix that motherhood penalty, the motherhood bias, I think that we're going to get to equality faster and more, you know, there, we have a, a more realistic opportunity to solve this problem once and for all. Wonderful. We're going to take a quick break before our rapid fire Q&A.
We're back from our break in talking to Reshma Sarjani and Kunal Modi. Kunal and Reshma, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. I was so struck by the motherhood penalty and all the actions that companies can now take, frankly, even now need to take to include mothers, include families more actively in this fight for better talent. We're wrapping up each of our Future of America podcasts with a rapid fire Q&A. Reshma, you're going to be up first, and then we'll go to Kunal. Is there a book or article that you've read recently that excites you about a more sustainable and inclusive future? Anything by McKinsey. Anything <laughs> by McKinsey. I'm not joking. I'm serious. I, I just want to say one thing. I know it's, I may be cheating because it's rapid fire. But, you know, when I built Girls Who Code, um, McKinsey did my five-year plan. And it was being like, because, everyone always says, well, how did you build this amazing organization? I'm like, McKinsey. And, you know, here at the beginning again of my next movement and having, being able to work with you and work with this incredible organization and, and, and solving this problem again, it allows you to bring clarity and sharpness and data to you know solving complex problems. And that's critical. So anything you put out, I read, because I was like, okay, the answer, li- the answer lies here. <laughs> we'll bring you back for a future <laughs> podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Um, in all seriousness, though, what makes you optimistic about a future with sustainable and inclusive growth? My girls, my girls, my, my, in my, my girls, I mean, my girls who code, like when I look at them and I see the problems that they want to solve, I see their resilience, I see their commitment, I see their empathy. I always say like, you know, girls will save us, they will heal us, they will lead us like we are in good hands. And what's the one thing listeners can do today to drive sustainable and inclusive growth? I would Pick one thing that you're going to advocate for yourself. I think we have to realize that we have an opportunity. We can have control, especially in this moment when there's so many open jobs and so much opportunity. We have, can have control over our work life and over our lives at work. And we can so pick one thing that you want to advocate for, for yourself and commit to doing it. Kanal, over to you. What's a book or an article that you've read recently that excites you about a more sustainable and inclusive future? Well, of course, I'm going to say pay up um, <laughs> by our friend Reshma here. But um, it really is a wonderful book and a, a real call to action and would recommend that everyone uh, check it out. And it certainly has shaped and informed my thinking. And I've been thinking about these topics for years and it really challenged the way I saw things. I'll also recommend one more, which is uh, Think Again by Adam Grant. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners have checked it out, but in particular, the notion of always being in learning mode, because that's going to be really important over these next uh, couple of years as we think about how do we create inclusive workplaces that are, you know, a real step change from what we had before the pandemic. What makes you optimistic about a future where we can achieve sustainable and inclusive growth? The conversations that you know, I've been in and hearing from leaders across organizations is really different this time around. I think there's a recognition among leaders that COVID was a real wake-up call for all of us, not only how we manage our organizations, but how we live our lives. And folks are asking questions around what is my role in contributing to a more sustainable future? What type of workplace do I want to create for my employees um, that allows them to thrive. And so I, I just really do feel like the nature of the conversation is different. And there is a boldness that is brewing that we can tap into right now. So inspiring. What's the one thing that listeners can do today to help promote sustainable and inclusive growth? So maybe answer this from the perspective, if you're in a position of influence in your organization and you're thinking about how you redesign workplaces to work for working parents, start by talking to them, um, survey your employees, 
take an inventory of their needs. One of the things that really stood out to me from the research that we did was the degree to which the solutions came from parents themselves. Parents know what worked for them, and they won't always be found in the traditional list of interventions in the HR playbook. So really take the time to survey working parents and how their thoughts have evolved through the pandemic, and you'll be surprised by the number of solutions that you uncover. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. That was Reshma Sajani, the founder of Girls Who Code and the founder and CEO of Marshall Plan for Moms, and Kunal Modi, a partner in McKinsey's Bay Area office. I'm Quaylen Ellengrude. You've been listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast series. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Future of America podcast. We're thrilled you're joining us as we explore the journey toward a more sustainable and inclusive and growing economy. Be sure to subscribe to the Future of America podcast on whichever platform you use and check out our insights and research on these topics at mckinsey.com slash future of America. Thanks for being a part of the Future of America.